Real Clear Defense Hot Wash podcast is sponsored by Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney's F-135 engine core upgrade leverages the expertise and capabilities of RTX while saving taxpayers $40 billion. It's the smart decision for the F-35. Welcome to the Real Clear Defense podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. This weekend, Christopher Nolan's highly anticipated film Oppenheimer opens. And to prepare our listeners for the story of one of America's most consequential and controversial scientific minds, we have something a little different from our normal in-depth conversations. We would like to share with you an audio essay from Real Clear contributor Addison Graham about the man behind the movie. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. In Christopher Nolan's newest film, Oppenheimer, a star-studded cast of talented actors, including Killian Murphy, Florence Pugh, Matt Damon, and Emily Blunt, will bring to the big screen the life of Robert Oppenheimer the brilliant theoretical physicist often called the father of the atomic bomb. The story of Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project is not merely a celebration of American ingenuity. It's a story that altered the course of human history, a history we now inherit. Fascinated by Oppenheimer's story, Christopher Nolan sat down in spring 2021 to read American Prometheus, the Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. It's a Pulitzer Prize-winning biography by Kai Bird and Martin Sherwin on the life and career of a man who was treated both as an American hero and later as a traitor. After finishing the lengthy biography, Nolan spent the summer writing a script based on the book. Co-author Kai Bird has read the script and predicts the movie will be, quote, regarded as unusually historically accurate for a Hollywood film. For that reason, Nolan says, the story doesn't leave you with anything too comfortable. But that's the story we're telling, he adds. It leaves you with resonant and troubling questions. If you see the movie and leave the theater feeling overly troubled, maybe you can slip into an adjacent theater and catch a showing of Barbie, a more lighthearted movie that, to Nolan's apparent irritation, premieres the same weekend as Oppenheimer. But with Russia's attack on Ukraine posing one of the most daunting threats of nuclear warfare since the Cold War, it may be time for us to contemplate the resonant, troubling questions Nolan raises. What, if anything, justifies the mass killing of non-combatants? Who shoulders the blame of such carnage? Can nuclear war really be won? Perhaps we can look for answers through the lens of a man who faced all of those questions and more with the uncertainty of the future hanging over him. As an enabler of great destruction, Robert Oppenheimer grappled with the many complex political and moral issues that we grapple with in our time. It was a hellish experience for him, one that later caused him to recall a passage of Hindu scripture, quote, now I am become death the destroyer of worlds. What led Oppenheimer to that moment? We interrupt this program to bring you a special news bulletin from CBS World News. A press association has just announced that President Roosevelt is dead. 
On April 12, 1945, while sitting for a portrait, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt collapsed and died of a cerebral hemorrhage. FDR had been a father-like figure to a nation that had gone through the Great Depression, only to be forced into a two-front war in Europe and the Pacific. Harry Truman, Roosevelt's little-known vice president, was sworn in as president later that day. Shortly thereafter, Truman was briefed on a top-secret program that would largely come to define his presidency, the Manhattan Project. Though Truman had been kept out of the loop as vice president, America's secret efforts to create a nuclear weapon had begun years before. On August 2, 1939, Albert Einstein signed a letter addressed to FDR, warning that the Nazis might be developing nuclear weapons. Einstein urged the United States to stockpile uranium ore and begin work on its own atomic weapons. As a respected physicist, Robert Oppenheimer was recruited away from the University of California, Berkeley, to work on the Manhattan Project in 1942. By 1943, he was appointed as director of the Los Alamos Laboratory in New Mexico, where the weapons were to be developed. From 200 miles away, he witnessed the first detonation at a test site on the New Mexico Plains on July 16, 1945. We knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. The government's code name for the atomic test was Trinity. But the Spanish name for that place was more fitting, Tornada del Muerto, or Dead Man's Route. Shortly after the test, as Oppenheimer was walking with his secretary, Ann Wilson, she heard him mutter under his breath, those poor little people, those poor little people. And yet that same week, he instructed airmen on the altitude at which the bomb should be dropped to ensure most destructive and devastating effect. Three weeks later, the bombs known as Little Man and Fat Boy were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. Many poor little people were vaporized. We have made a thing, a most terrible weapon, that has altered abruptly and profoundly the nature of the world. We have made a thing that by all the standards of the world we grew up in is an evil thing. And by so doing, by our participation in making it possible to make these things, we have raised again the question of whether science is good for man, of whether it is good to learn about the world, to try to understand it, to try to control it, to help give to the world of men increased insight, increased power. Because we are scientists, we must say an unalterable yes to these questions. It is our faith and our commitment, seldom made explicit, even more seldom challenged, that knowledge is a good in itself. Knowledge and such powers must come with it. We'll be right back after our word from our sponsor. The Real Clear Defense Hot Wash podcast is sponsored by Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney's F-135 engine core upgrade leverages the expertise and capabilities of RTX while saving taxpayers $40 billion. It's the smart decision for the F-35. And now, back to Addison Graham. 
The day of days for America and her allies. Crowds before the White House await the announcement from the president that the Japs have surrendered unconditionally. I have received this afternoon a message from the Japanese government in reply to the message forwarded to that government by the Secretary of State on August 11th. I deem this reply a full acceptance of the Potsdam Declaration, which specifies the unconditional surrender of Japan. Japan surrendered. The war was finally over. Oppenheimer became one of the most famous scientists in the world and was largely viewed as an American hero. But he did not feel like a hero. He plunged into deep depression after the detonation of the bombs as he thought of the destructive powers he had helped unleash. Three months after the war's end, Oppenheimer visited Harry Truman at the White House. Mr. President, I feel I have blood on my hands, he said. Truman, according to his own account, replied, The blood is on my hands. I ordered using the damn thing. Let me worry about that. Truman later instructed acting Secretary of State Dean Acheson, I don't want to see that son of a bitch in this office ever again. He didn't set that bomb off. I did. This kind of sniveling makes me sick. At another point, Truman reportedly referred to Oppenheimer as that crybaby scientist. Truman and Oppenheimer clearly saw the atomic bomb from two distinct points of view. Oppenheimer was worried about the possibility of nuclear weapons ending humanity. But Truman was worried, first and foremost, about ending World War II, the deadliest conflict in human history. Nearly 20 years later, when Truman was asked if he viewed the atom bomb as a blessing or a curse to society, his thinking on the matter was resolute and unchanging. Well, I thought it was a blessing. I thought it could be used and made a blessing. I never worried about its being a curse. I wanted a weapon that would win the war, and it did. That's what I was interested in. The authors of American Prometheus documented another scene from the White House exchange between Oppenheimer and Truman. Oppenheimer argued for putting international controls over nuclear weapons. Truman asked, when do you think the Russians will be able to get such a weapon? Oppenheimer said likely in the near future, but that it was hard to know. Truman interrupted and said, well, I know, never. Oppenheimer seemed to grasp what many of his fellow patriots, including President Truman, did not understand. The tremendous power of the atom could not be contained in that way. The Soviets successfully tested their first nuclear device on August 29, 1949, and the Cold War took on a menacing new dimension. President Truman's dramatic announcement that Russia has created an atomic explosion sends reporters racing for Flushing Meadow, where Russia's Vashinsky arrives to address right. the United Nations. Mr. Vashinsky, have you got any statement about President no, no, Truman's statement on the atomic please, bomb? Please, 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 excuse me. Does Russia have the atomic bomb? Yes, sir. Well, what you reply to me? What do you do? The Russian foreign minister maintains his silence about Russia's atomic progress in his address. Oppenheimer was appointed to head the Atomic Energy Commission a civilian agency in control of nuclear research and the development of nuclear weapons. With his position, he advocated for international control of nuclear weapons to avoid an arms race. His refusal to work on the hydrogen bomb, which would be a thousand times stronger than the atomic bomb, called his patriotism into question among hardliners. 
and he became one of the early targets of McCarthyism. In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. Oppenheimer was accused of being a communist spy. And by December 1953, President Dwight Eisenhower ordered that a, quote, blank wall be placed between Dr. Oppenheimer and any secret data. Stripped of his security clearance, Oppenheimer became a pariah. He was humiliated. Oppenheimer's political affiliations were known before his involvement with the Manhattan Project, and nobody saw the need to revoke his security clearance. But Red Scare politics spared no one. Politicians and bureaucrats dug up every communist tie Oppenheimer ever had. As a young man, Oppenheimer was neither strictly a science nerd nor a political ideologue. He read French literature and Ernest Hemingway, not Locke or Marx. He did not become more involved politically until 1937 when he met Jean Tatlock, a Michigan-born, Stanford-trained psychiatrist who was an active member of the Communist Party. Tatlock would never agree to marry him, but Oppenheimer's eventual wife, Kitty, was also a member of the Communist Party. Though Oppenheimer was not a card-carrying communist himself, he certainly supported the party and even donated as much as $400 to the cause. But the American Communist Party of the 1930s was not the same as the party of the 1950s. The issues Oppenheimer was known to have cared about were desegregating swimming pools in Berkeley, California, and improving the working conditions of farm workers. His most passionate cause, one he shared with many contemporary American liberals, was opposing the fascists led by Hitler's ally Francisco Franco during Spain's civil war. Oppenheimer's biographers are adamant that he was not a Stalin sympathizer or a Soviet spy, but instead a motivated American patriot. Once stripped of his security clearance, Oppenheimer never got it back. He died in 1967. But in 2022, the Secretary of Energy, Jennifer Granholm, nullified the 1954 decision to revoke Oppenheimer's security clearance. In a statement, Graham Holmes said, More evidence has come to light of the bias and unfairness of the process that Dr. Oppenheimer was subjected to, while the evidence of his loyalty and love of country have only been further affirmed. He made profound contributions to our national defense, she wrote. It is difficult to know what Oppenheimer would think of his contribution to our nation's defense if he could see the world today. He feared he helped create a monster that he warned would cause the world to one day curse the names Los Alamos and Hiroshima. The fact that he knew the Manhattan Project would have succeeded without him was little solace to a physicist who felt he had blood on his hands. In many ways, Robert Oppenheimer was a casualty of his own weapon. We live in a very unusual world marked by great and irreversible changes that occur within the span of one man's life. We live in a time where our knowledge and understanding of the world of nature grows wider, broader, and deeper with unparalleled speed and scope, and where the problems of applying this knowledge to man's needs and man's hopes are very new. 
and only a little illuminated by our past history. Uncertainty surrounding the world's future still looms, and the existence of nuclear weapons only adds to the question marks. But Oppenheimer would likely concur that the world would be a far more dangerous place if America did not possess nuclear weapons, allowing dictators to intimidate other nations without the threat of American retaliation. Oppenheimer hoped that the existence of nuclear weapons could help to ensure lasting peace in the world. But he knew that the weapon he helped create was also capable of destroying civilization. To stave off such destruction is an ongoing struggle, a struggle that each generation must take up. After all, as is often said, there are no winners in war. This is especially true in nuclear war. There are no victors, just poor little people. Thanks for listening. I'm Addison Graham. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It really helps others discover the program. And let us know what you think about the podcast. Is there a topic or a guest you would like us to talk to? You can follow us on Twitter at HotWashRCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at RealClearDefense.com. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For Addison Graham and everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.